Here's a question. What's the most common way to explore data? Would you say pandas and matplotlib? Maybe you went a little broader and more general and said Jupyter Notebooks. How about Excel or Google Sheets or Numbers or some other spreadsheet app? Yeah, my bet is on Excel. And while it has many drawbacks, it makes exploring tabular data very accessible to many people, most of whom aren't even developers or data scientists. On this episode, we're talking about a tool called Mido. This is an add-in for Jupyter Notebooks that injects an Excel-like interface right into the notebook. You pass it data via a pandas data frame or some other source, and then you can explore it as if you're using Excel. The cool thing is though, just below that, in another cell, it's writing the pandas code. You'd need to actually accomplish that outcome in code. I think this will make pandas and Python data exploration way more accessible to many more people. If you've been intimidated by pandas or know someone who has, this could be what you're looking for. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 343, recorded November 8th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm. And follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at TalkPython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Shortcut and Linode. And the transcripts are sponsored by Assembly AI. Aaron, Nate, and Jake, welcome to TalkPython to me. Hey. Hey. Hey, all Thanks, man. How's it going? It's going really well. I'm excited to be on the data science side of the world today with you guys. Cool. So are we. Yeah, you built some really neat tools to help people get started and get up to speed and just be more efficient than just solely writing Python code, but not you know, excluding that either with your product, Mido. So that's super fun, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do, you know, let's just kind of go around and how do you get interested in data science and working on this Python tool? Aaron? Want to go first? Yeah. So a little background, Jake and I, you can't tell just by the first names, but we are twin brothers. <laughs> so we've been working on projects together for a long time. Nate has been our best friend since middle school. I think I didn't get invited to his eighth grade birthday. So I think maybe starting in high school. And then he also went to college with us. And I think like- oh, fantastic. We, yeah. We got our first like taste of data science at Penn. We all studied a mix of computer science and business. And in the business classes, you do a lot of Excel-based, mostly, unfortunately, Excel-based data analytics work and stat classes and finance classes and stuff like that. So I think that's really where we got our first taste of, of data analytics or data science work. And then we've each had some experiences through internships and jobs that we've had over the past few years in the data science space as well. But really, I think it all goes back to the beginnings of the courseworks that we did at, at Penn. That's great that you all are able to stay together. I mean, obviously brothers, but continue to work together and on this project, you know, business, business schools, a whole business programs just run on Excel, don't they? It's kind of amazing the contrast because so Aaron and I specifically both got degrees in computer science and in the business school. And so it was there was this transition where you'd be hanging out in, you know, in class in the engineering school and you'd be writing code and then you would like walk up campus into the business school and it'd be like returning to the dark ages in some ways. Right. Yeah. And what's really cool, I think, about Excel generally is that what we observed is that it lets 
you know, our peers in school and us as well kind of complete really some amazing projects that we might have not been able to do with code because our skills, you know, we were still learning at that point. Um, so it's really kind of this really beginner friendly, amazingly powerful tool for what it is. But then we would go back down to the engineering school and be like, oh my God, there's all this tooling here. We could have superpowers, but we don't know how to use this stuff, right? Yeah, so there was absolutely. this very direct contrast that we witnessed where there's very cool stuff happening all over the place, but the, the tooling differential is pretty dramatic between, between business school and, and uh, computer science world. And I think that's kind of what initially made us interested in this space. Sure, you don't want to underestimate the power of just firing up Excel, selecting a section, throwing up a, a graph or two, and like, that's incredible. And all of the functions and stuff. But, you know, it's if you think of bad programming practices, one of the worst ones has got to be like, the, do these three things and then go to over here and then do a couple things, then go over there and then get that thing and then go back. You know, we've banished this type of programming from regular programming long ago. And Excel is like that without even being able to see where the go to's point. You know, no, it's yeah. really, it's really not very predictable, right? Yeah, it's really amazing. And it, it's really, it's crazy, I think, because once you start thinking about spreadsheets, you quickly realize, I mean, there's a couple of crazy things about spreadsheets that people don't really acknowledge. we you know, talk about them internally because we're spreadsheet nerds at this point. And, you know, we like, you know, hyping up spreadsheets <laughs> and stuff, but it's like, you know, the original killer applications of computers were spreadsheets, right? Oh, and, yeah. And more than that, it's spreadsheets are the most successful programming environment in the world. Hundreds of millions of people can program in Excel. The next leading programming language has 10, 20 million. You know what I mean? So it's really, there's an order of magnitude difference in how, you know, well adopted these things are, but you're totally right. The number of foot guns in Excel and the amount of like 50 megabyte insane models that we've seen where people are like, it's 75 tabs and they're all linked to each other in some crazy circular way. And you it's really slow. I don't know why. Like, well, I, I <laughs> Unclear. know why. Not sure what's <laughs> happening, but yeah. And we probably have built a, a couple of those ourselves, probably even worse ones. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we've seen that and it's definitely, those are some of the problems of spreadsheets that we kind of initially, we were like, hmm, maybe these are th some things that we can, you know, try to help solve. Yeah, Absolutely. And Aaron, as you would go from business school back to the computer science side, I guess specifically to the business school, did your business peers look at you like, oh, these are the guys that have the power to make the thing happen. They can help us build the thing that we can't quite automate or can't quite pull off. I think in some ways, it was like trying to work in a group in an Excel spreadsheet is a miserable experience. I hope you haven't had to do it, but it's like you upload, you have a Google Drive and then you end up uploading new versions to the Google Drive. And then it's usually a Google Drive paired with a text message group chat. And it's like, I just finished this sheet. Why don't you go up and, you know, do download it again or something? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Make sure you're not doing it the same time I'm doing it. And I think that I don't think Nate and I maybe solved, solved those collaboration problems over at Penn. But I think it was those experiences and our thinking we've had of our programming as a superpower made us want to start doing this. I don't know if it was always recognized by everybody else though. I think the big thing was maybe we weren't the best at attending class. So that was, it was hard to be a good group member in the first place, but <laughs> one day, one day will be helpful. Yeah. Uh, group work was always hard for me as well. Jake, how about you? How'd you get into this whole project here? Well, mostly by bloodline. I'm uh, Aaron's yeah. twin brother. So <laughs> sort of like a, some sort of covenant, I think comes through that. But uh, no, we, so we, we started working really in this like Excel collaboration space. My background, I worked at a software company during college, sort of on the project management side of some data science projects. So I had, mm -hmm. you know, not quite the business side of it yet, but at least a little more one step removed from like the coding product side of it. Yeah. And yeah, we started working these collaboration issues and we built a few other products before it had some, you know, modicums of success there, but really took a step back at one point. We're looking at like, what are the biggest problems with spreadsheets? It's the speed, it's the inability to apply into large data sizes. 
And it's the lack of repeatability bill. It just allows you to do, you know, repeat, repeatable processes in an efficient way. And so the place we found that does all this really well is some sort of sort of very elite is, is Python. So the idea was to stick a spreadsheet interface on top of Python. And that was sort of like a sentence we had written down. We're like, okay, now we need to backtrack and realize like, what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we implement that? And, uh, opened a few thousand cans of worms doing so. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's a super neat idea. You know, there's a lot of things that you can automate with Python, but with what you guys built, we'll get to it in a little bit, but what you all built lets you interact in this spreadsheet way, and then it writes the Python code. It doesn't just sort of allow you to, to make changes, and then you got to stay in your tool, right? You use the tool to write code that otherwise might be a little bit of a stretch for you. Yeah, I think, and the, I can talk more high level, and they can talk about you know, exactly why and how we did that, but like a lot of, just from the business side, like a lot of other tools will try and extract Python away. So we'll give you, yeah. we'll allow you to do the types of workflows that you would do in Python, but in a GUI, individual environment, we are much more tethered to the Python, or try to be more tethered to the Python and the notebook. It's really important to us that you're staying in your Python environment and you're not at any, now you're not at a disadvantage at all because you don't have the code. The code is right there. It's being generated in real time. And that's important for yourself. If you're learning Python, if you're trying to use the code, or if it's a communication layer, you want that code because you want to send that to a developer who's working in Python as well. So really important for us to be tethered there. Right. Yeah. It probably brings, allows you to bring more people into the, the actual project than before. Totally. Sure. Yeah. You're much less siloed by being in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of like mentality of when you're building tools for beginners or people that don't know, like maybe the professional software, make it really point and click and kind of like hide a lot of the complexity. I think that's something that we've experienced with tools that we've used. For example, like we use Stripe and Stripe mm -hmm. creates a bunch of dashboards for you. But the problem is we have no idea what those dashboards, like what, what is the nitty gritty details of how those numbers are calculated? And so we have all these metrics and we have really poor understanding of like, what is this actually telling us? And so I think something interesting that we definitely try to do is we give you you know, people that are maybe less familiar with writing the syntax yourself, the ability to, as you said, you know, point and click and use the spreadsheet environment and then generate the code. And then if you ever have questions about, oh, well, like what did this, what is this pivot table that I created? What does it really mean? Then you can look at the generated code and see exactly what's going on. And I think that kind of like yeah. understanding where users need help and where users want the as professional as possible, you know, nitty gritty details is a stratification that we've thought about. And I think have a somewhat unique approach to when it comes to these like no code, low code tools. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to set the stage by talking about some of the different things people are doing with notebooks because notebooks have really taken over in the data science space for good reason, I think. You know, we had IPython notebooks and we had Jupyter and we had Jupyter Lab, which is doing a little bit more than just Jupyter. And people really love them, I think. And while Jupyter Lab is great, I think. There's even, there's a bunch of creative things going on, trying to extend it and use it in different ways. And I feel like Mido falls in there. So I wanted to throw out a couple and just see if you all have heard of these. And if so, get your thoughts on them. One of them is this thing called Jut, uh, J-U-T, Jut, maybe something like that. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to actually view notebooks in the browser. So have you guys, or not the browser, in the terminal, have you guys seen this? I haven't um, seen I it, but I... I do have a lot of sympathy for the unknown pronunciation of Jut or Jute because we get <laughs> Mito and Mito a lot. So my heart goes out to the Jute <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I'm messing it up, but yeah. Yeah, so here's a way to say like, well, these notebooks are so popular. 
let's see if we can show them in the terminal. Like if I'm SSH'd into a remote machine and it has no, you know, IPY and V files and I just want to see them, how do I look at them? And so you just say JUT, I'm going to go with JUT. You just say JUT and then the file name and then boom, it shows it right there using Rich, I think. Super cool. Yeah, I think that this is, and I'm sure this comment will, will expand out on as we see more of these, but I think it really demonstrates something that we've really observed, which is that notebooks are not like, they're just like Excel in many ways. They're not a tool that's used by one person for one specific thing, right? So we use a, a tool called Mixpanel, for example. It mm -hmm. uh, helps us track some metrics, for example. It's a product analytics tool. Yeah, I've, I've used it before. Yeah, it's, it, it gives you insane amount of analytics of like, where did these people come from? How did they find my my product and stuff like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you can kind yeah. of imagine, though, it's, it's really, in some ways, it's just for product analytics, right? In yeah. some ways. And the really interesting thing about a lot of our users is that we... You know, one thing as we're trying to learn about our users and work with them to improve the tool, one thing we really realized is there's people from all over the place and they're interested in notebooks <laughs> right. for 472 different reasons. Right. And so some people using notebooks are people who've never written any Python code before in their life. Some people have two weeks under of experience and some people are 75 year old developers who only use the terminal. And if you show them anything else, they'll try and fight you. Right. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's really I think this demonstrates that there's really an appetite for a, a wide range of kind of ways of consuming these things and presenting these things and editing these things on um, these notebooks specifically. Yeah, that's, just that's a great, uh, yeah. yeah, great analysis. Uh, I, think I totally agree. That's another cool thing about a tool like this or tools like this more generally is that I think what they sort of have to do from a product perspective is condense down what are the really powerful things about notebooks because they're taking a notebook and bringing it out of a notebook environment. And I think kind of what we're trying to do with a spreadsheet is like, what are the values of a spreadsheet? How can we bring a spreadsheet into other environments? So I think a tool like Jude is, is, is trying to do that. I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about product. It's like sort of like, what is the essence? What, is it, what are the essential parts of a notebook? What are the essential parts of a spreadsheet? How do we translate those and bring that value to other environments? So I always, I'm interested in tools like that. Yeah, for sure. This is a, an interesting one. Another one is they just came out with JupyterLab desktop oh, no. version. And I suspect that you guys could even integrate with the JupyterLab desktop app, right? I hope so. I, most likely, <laughs> yes. The, the answer is probably yes. But, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, like candidly, if I spend one more minute on installation problems, I might, you know, chop my arms off or something. <laughs> I don't know. But it's it's really, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to preach to you. I'm sure you've you know, heard this a million times, but the, the Python inc installation ecosystem environment issues is a, it's a massive blocker. I knew it was a massive blocker from like an individual level. Oh, I bet if you're trying to reach people who are going through it, like I would just want to use Excel and like have a little bit of code. Yeah, Conda, virtual environments, hip versions of Python. Yeah, you probably get a couple of questions about that every now and then. Yeah, just, just a few. Sure. Just, just a few. Discord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that this is a, a really cool example of, I guess, you know, the Jupyter devs realizing that distribution is one of the primary problems here. And certainly with us, it's it's like yeah. the primary bottleneck in, in users trying our product is not, they can't figure out how to use it. It's that they can't even get the thing installed in the first place. Yeah. You know, making that as easy as possible. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's still work to do here, but uh, I, you know, really hats off to them and definitely something that we're interested in and in, in working with on, in the future. If we don't already, there's probably some hack to do yeah. it currently. But no, yeah. I have not. I've not done anything in earnest with Jupyter Lab desktop, but I have installed it and run it. And I think it comes pre-assembled with Python and Conda. You don't have to have, it basically comes all set. And it, then it just hosts Jupyter Lab locally inside of an Electron app. So it, it might even be better for you guys. Yeah, I'm not think, totally sure, but if you can make it work at all, I bet it's better. I think what Nate is talking about is it's a trade-off that any tool or product building as an extension to Python is going to face, especially if it's one that's trying to make parts of data science more accessible to a newer audience. 
if you're building it in the Jupyter environment, there's a lot of freebies you get. There's a lot of great nuggets, valuable things with users you get, but you know, installation can be such a nightmare that you might be casting away a certain part, top of the funnel just by doing it there. One of the benefits, I guess, that you all will receive is people can go Google for help setting up notebooks and getting the notebook started and all that. And you don't have to be part of that, right? Like there's a whole ecosystem of, of people running notebooks, people writing articles about using notebooks for beginners. And so you can just sort of level up on top of that and say, once you go through all what they show you over here, here's how you go, right? I mean, obviously you want to help people succeed because if they can't get Jupyter going, they can't use Mido. Yeah, I was creating documentation for getting set up with Mido and I went to the Jupyter Lab documentation and for things like creating a new sheet, I just grabbed the Jupyter Lab YouTube video and put it in our documentation. Free. Well, that's one of the things I like about your documentation and your site is it's sprinkled with screencast like little examples of how to do stuff or how to demonstrate stuff. And I think more places should do that, right? There, there's so many places or so many projects that I just don't understand. They'll, it'll be a UI framework and there won't be a single picture of anything. Like what? It's about picture. The whole purpose is pictures. Give us a picture at least. It's like a gallery or something. And uh, you know, similarly with how do you use things and just yeah, you know, hats off to you guys for putting those in there because I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, one of the reasons I think we've done that and had some some good videos is just in terms of just growing the tool, we've partnered with a lot of people in the YouTube data science community and they're all really good at making demos. I think we've learned a lot from them. People like the data professor or uh, Chris Nick or two we work with a lot, but they've kind of sort of, I think, I think at least myself learned a lot from how to present a tool in a video and, and it's obviously really valuable for, uh, for documentation. Yeah, I prefer to just fire up a two or three minute video and watch it instead of reading through and see what I really got to pay attention to. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse.io. Happy with your project management tool? Most tools are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything or way too complex for anyone to want to use them without constant prodding. Shortcut is different though, because it's worse. No, wait, no, I mean, it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams. It's fast, intuitive, flexible, powerful, and many other nice, positive adjectives. Key features include team-based workflows. Individual teams can use default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. Org-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and back. Tight version control integration. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Clubhouse ties directly into them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface. The rest of Shortcut is just as friendly as their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing in the trash. Iteration planning. Set weekly priorities and let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burndown charts and other reporting. Give it a try over at talkpython.fm slash Shortcut. Again, that's talkpython.fm slash shortcut. Choose shortcut because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. JupyterLab desktop is uh, one of these sort of interesting things. Another one is JupyterLite, which is Jupyter written in WebAssembly that runs just in the front end of the browser. You guys check this thing out? No, but this sounds amazing. I don't know if I saw the WebAssembly version, but I saw a Python compiled to JS version yeah. of this, etc. Yeah. But I mean, it would be very cool if everything could happen in the browser because I feel like, you know, installation problems would evaporate, which is yeah the goal. It's the goal at the end of the day. So this is super interesting. We'll definitely check this out. Yeah, this might also be relevant to you guys because it's 
it's basically Jupyter running, and then they run in-browser WebAssembly language kernels. So a limited set of CPython in WebAssembly in the browser, and probably also Julia and R and all those things. Maybe it's partially non-technical audience like myself. <laughs> like what, what, is the, what is the benefit here? I'll, I can take a shot, yeah. Uh, so how I would describe this is that, so normally the way JupyterLab works is that it's a, it's a client-server model, right? So your, your client is effectively the thing that you as a user interact with. You have a notebook that you see, you write code in the notebook, you press Shift-Enter to run a notebook cell, what actually happens when you press shift enter is that code gets sent to the server. The server in this case is a Python kernel and the Python kernel actually runs that code and then sends you back the results. So there's what you see on your web browser and then there's a server running usually on your command line or something and you send code to it, it executes the code and sends you the results. The benefit of this thing is that you can get rid of that backend. So there's no more installation and instead you only need this kind of notebook that lives on the front end WebAssembly is a tool that allows us to run the code on the front end. And so instead of taking code, sending it to the back end and getting it back, we can do that all in one location. Right. Um, and and the, the challenges you've already been talking about are the challenge of setting up that back end to get Python to run on your machine with yeah. the environments and the dependencies. And this would theoretically, in principle, at least avoid all that. It's just loaded up and it goes. Yeah. It's super cool. No, we'll definitely we'll definitely look into it because this is a I mean, this is an area of continual research for us is how to improve our, our installation process. So yeah, very cool. All right, what else have I pulled up here? A paper mill. So a paper mill lets you treat notebooks like almost like functions that you can execute a notebook and then get a value out for all sorts of things. This is probably the least relevant to you guys, the things that I pulled up here, because it's exactly about making it not interactive and you know, kind of skipping that. But just another interesting thing that people are doing to kind of add more or do more with these notebooks. Yeah, it's, it seems super cool. Oh, arrogance. No, I was just going to say, I've seen people We've seen people who have notebooks where they like call functions in other notebooks and all of that syntax, you know, the panda syntax is confusing, but then like linking notebooks and all that oh my goodness. is confusing as well. So I think it's all interesting. It's all interesting to see, you know, I think just like spreadsheets have so many different use cases and I think Nate touched on this earlier. Notebooks have an incredibly large number of different use cases with yeah. people from like top level data scientists to people just getting started. So the tooling ecosystem that's being created and it already exists is really quite diverse and really powerful. Absolutely. All right. I think I've got one more for you here. This might be the one that you heard of, Nate, called Notebook.js. No, this one renders, parses them and then uh, renders it down to HTML, which is, I guess I don't have one to, to open, but that's all right. So yeah, that's that's pretty neat that it'll basically allow you to turn notebooks into HTML. And I think just to kind of draw a, a categorization model over what we've kind of seen before, I think there's there's a couple areas of focus, and these are things that we focus on internally, and we I think will themes that will come up throughout the rest of the conversation. So there's things that we'll call let's say presentation, right? And presentation is this looking at the outputs here in the terminal, or looking at the outputs easily on a web page without running a server, right? And presentation is something that we encounter. How do we present data? How do we present conclusions from analysis, etc.? Then there's another thing which I think this paper mill thing that we looked at last is super relevant on, which is this idea of repeatability, right? As anyone who's worked in notebooks knows, there are really great areas for being a scratch pad. It can get pretty confusing sometimes when you've got like all these cells flying around, you're executing things out of order. That's the thing, you know, we have sort of solved the the Excel, this cell refers to that yes. cell. And then, but you have this human aspect of notebooks, right? I can go, I want to try this, try this, try this, go back and change this and then yeah. run this and the stuff below it. You know, you can run them in different orders and even change them and then have some of the invisible changes stuck in another unrun cell. Yeah, it's, yeah, that could be a problem. I mean, Aaron and I spend all day in notebooks and the amount of times where I'll go up to Aaron and be like, Aaron, 
dude, look at this. This code makes no sense. What is this bug? I don't understand it. And Aaron's like, you fool. You've been one, three, four, not one, two, three. What were you thinking? You know, like just the amount of times that even we as people use notebooks all day, yeah. that is really, you know, it's dramatic. And so I think that um, it's, you know, that area of reproducibility and repeatability is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, mostly because a lot of our users are really interested in it and it's problems that they struggle with. And uh, it's something I think we'll definitely get into, you know, as we yeah. kind of, you know, what we actually ended up building. Yeah, awesome. Uh, well, so speaking of getting into it, let's, let's talk about Mido. So I think Mido lives in this realm of these, interesting ways to do more with notebooks. And as we've already hinted at, you basically take an Excel user interface, stick it into a notebook, and then allow people to interact with the data within the notebook in an Excel style way, right? That uh, what's your elevator pitch? Oh, I can give elevator pitch. Elevator is essentially, it's a spreadsheet interface for Python. So everything you do in the spreadsheet is going to generate the equivalent code for you in the code cell below. If you're watching the video right now, you're seeing a little demo happen, but we have features for exploratory data analysis. We have features for data wrangling, data munging. I've heard lots of different words for that type of process. So yeah. some of them's there. And then graphing as well. And also we have the ability to save and replay analyses, sort of like a macro. And in terms of users, you know, we have people who are newer to Python using it to sort of introduce themselves to the Python world. They're learning as they go. But the nice thing is that they're not held back by the syntax at any point. So you're not Googling syntax, you're not going to Stack Overflow. You're in your notebook the entire time sort of staying in a state of flow. And then we also have more advanced Python users and people intermediate in the middle using it just to get their analysis done more quickly. It's really fast to do something usually, especially like the code for graphing or pivot tables or merging. Take a lot of time to type it out and get the syntax right. So in our tool, you just do it in an Excel interface that you're used to and it spits out the correct code for you. Yeah, it's cool. People definitely need to see the little video. So if you haven't checked it out, you know, obviously I'll put a couple of videos in the show notes, but yeah, that's the idea is you come in and you just basically inside the notebook as part of the cell, you know, you might be familiar with having an interactive widget for like some kind of graph, right? Where it's got like some sliders and stuff. It's like that, but it's Excel-ish, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Was this your first idea or where did this whole idea start? We've worked on a lot of different like spreadsheet related tools over, I guess, a year and a half ago or two years, I don't, a long time ago at this point, we started building like a GitHub for Excel. We're building essentially like, you know, difference detection, mer allowing you to merge, going back to those original problems that we talked about that we experienced at school. So we were building kind of this GitHub for Excel platform. We were primarily talking to investment bankers and people in private equity and these like really Excel power users. We built the tool, we've inter interacted with a lot of them, eventually realized that wasn't maybe the most helpful or space that we could be working in and ended up finding our way to this where it was more Python-based, Jupyter notebooks, and just making them more accessible. And as Jake said, you know, helping people across the spectrum from beginners to more advanced data analysts get their analysis done faster. Sure. I think there's two angles here. One is just, you could be really fast, right? You could say, okay, I want to do, I see the data, I want to sort by this. Now I want to drop these three columns and then I want to, you know, compute a, do a computed column of sort of thing, or maybe join two pieces of data, like two data frames and create like a, a larger one out of that and so on. You could be really quick with that. But I think maybe even more important to that is helping people who are just stepping into the data science side of the world, right? They've they've been working in some other tools or no tools whatsoever, really. And then they just, they hear, oh, I should go do Python and I should do notebooks. And then they're confronted with pandas, which pandas is great and it's not that hard to use, but there's a zillion things you can do with pandas and it's not super discoverable. 
what it is you should choose. And also the notebooks don't really help as much as they could, I think, in presenting the features of an API, right? Like if I'm working in PyCharm or VS Code and I say dot, like, boom, there's a bunch of descriptions. And if I get the mouse near it, it'll give me like examples and documentation. And here it just lets you type unless you hit, you know, dot tab and you explicitly ask for it. And a lot of people don't, I suspect, if they're coming from economics, they don't know that, oh, like tab has this magic to show me what I can do <laughs> and stuff like that, right? Those people making the transition to the notebook environment are doing so at a along a spectrum of willingness as well. Some people are doing it because they're really excited about, you know, up-leveling their skills, learning Python, making their analysis faster. And then some people are doing it because, you know, upper level management wants me to do that. And I think yeah. those people are really grateful for having a tool that will help them, you know, meet the workflow requirements that they're working in, but not necessarily having to, you know, I'm sure you've read at some point the Pandas documentation. And it's it's one of those that it has lots of great examples in fairness, but no pictures, you know, it's not yeah, the most probably intuitive. Probably not a lot of tutorial videos in there. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Good. I would add a sort of a third category to what Aaron was saying, which is like, it's it's people not forced by management, but it's not sort of out of their own interest in Python. It's more so they're just sort of forced to based on what they're trying to accomplish. If they have a certain data set of a certain size, you simply can't do it in Excel or Google Sheets. So they're, I need a medium that's going to allow me to facilitate data analysis on this scale. And it'd be really frustrating if you're thrown into pandas to do that and you have to spend all your time spending doing simple things that you're so used to doing in Excel, like adding columns, doing pivot tables, whatever it is, using formulas. And now you're spending 90% of your time going through syntax and making sure that you're typing out and capitalizing the right letters in a, in a, in a line of code. That can be really frustrating. So our tool is really trying to allow you to stay focused on the actual analysis the entire time and less about right. getting your code right. And many people are Excel literate, right? And so yeah. it kind of leverages that a little bit. Yeah. And then for... You know, people who aren't even coming from Excel, but are just data scientists, they're, the word is not, not Excel literate, but they're sort of like visual literate. That's a horrible phrase. But what it means essentially <laughs> is that they understand how to do this. Basically. They understand, okay, these are the things I need to do. And here are the buttons to do it. Here are the functions I can use. So it's still a yeah. really valuable environment for everyone, Excel or Python otherwise. Nice. So question from the audience out there. Bowen says, hello, oh, cool. what are the limitations of Mido? That's a great question. I think the, the honest answer is that Mido is certainly a work in progress and there's a large portion of Pandas functionality that we don't currently support. So kind of, I think a helpful context here is how we're actually developing this tool. So Mido is very much, I would say, a collaboration with our users. And what that practically means is that join our Discord, there's a feature request channel, and anyone has the ability to show up and essentially say, hey, this is missing from my workflow. And we'll say, oh, that's on our roadmap, or oh, that wasn't on our roadmap, we'll add that, or help us engage with your workflow and understand where that's coming from. But essentially what's happening is over the past six to eight to nine months or so, we've been working really heavily with our users to kind of build out the core pieces of Pandas functionality that most of our users work with one by one uh, and kind of investing their workflows back into the tool. Yeah, how, which way do you take it? Do you go and say, All right, these are the things people need to do in Pandas. How do we surface that in our interface? Or do you say, these are the Excel type things people are happy with. How do I make that happen in Pandas? Like, which direction do you find yourself going? It's a really great question. And Aaron, you can definitely speak to this more because this is kind of part of our process internally that's been evolving. But really kind of what we try and do at this point is we try and we try and work very heavily with our users to understand, you know, at the highest of levels, what are they trying to accomplish, right? Someone really isn't usually trying to make a pivot table. Usually what they're trying to do is conclude, should I 
tell a salesperson to do X or Y. What state are we spending getting the most sales in? And all I have is zip codes or something like that. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. Right? There, really, a lot of people that we work with, and this isn't the only thing, but one of the things, for example, is they're operating the level of, I'm looking to predict this feature or understand what affects this, this piece of my data. And so what we do is we kind of work with them to understand their workflow. And then we use that to internally figure out, you know, what features drive this? What does Pandas support? And how can we provide an interface on that that really lets people you know, get this done as quickly as possible in a way that gives them as much flexibility at the end of the day if they need to take this from Mido and, and go run with the code somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Eric, I think, uh, been, uh, or, go for it, Jake. No, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I feel like in the beginning, kind of when they were saying, we were very focused on, let's put Excel into Python. And it was like more about the Excel functionality. But I think over time, we've come to think more about the question is more, what is the best visual interface for Python, for data science? And it's less so, and so some of those things are from Excel, some of those things are our own creations. It's, it's still a spreadsheet interface, but the goal is certainly not to take Microsoft Excel and give you all of that in Python. Interesting. Yeah, cool. All right, I think maybe a, a good way to understand this, how this workflow works and, and get a peek inside of the features is over here somewhere, I think in the documentation side of things, you've got, yeah, right at the beginning here, quick tutorial here, You've got this sort of, I don't know, I'm not bouncing around, I'm not finding quite where it was to tell you, but there's this example where you go and load up a couple of CSV files and then like join them to create a pivot table and stuff on that, like that. Maybe give us a talk through what working with that data flow kind of looks like. You know, I talked about this idea of like turning zip codes into states and that kind of stuff. What does working with Mito feel like? Give us a, a sense. I can talk a little about that. So I think working with Mito feels hopefully very fast and very intuitive, or I think are two of the things, and, and maybe robust, or maybe like the three kind of things we strive for. I think in terms of workflows that we see people doing, a lot of people kind of fit this like feature creator and automator use case that we think about. So it's people that have some business sort of question, like where are all my sales coming from when I just have these zip codes? And they're probably trying to do that in Python because they've been doing it in Excel over and over again each month, and they're looking for a more robust and more automatic way of doing that. So I think a lot of a lot of how a lot of the ways that we see these workflows play out is people either have a CSV file or they have a, like a Snowflake connection to get some data, and then they start by doing you know some simple EDA and trying to get a better sense of what what their data actually looks like. Right. Without Mido, it might be something like df.head or exactly. sample and just like kind of get a, a visual look of a grid of data, right? Exactly. Or even some people are, they want the more visual interface. So they're downloading it to Excel initially and doing some manipulations or something like that there. But then that workflow is very you know, separate from their more automatic script that they're creating. And then they have to kind of reconcile any changes that they've made back into the Python workflow. But yeah, so Mito has a bunch of features. There's some here, you know, if you scroll down in the documentation on this left-hand side, you might see some stuff that might be helpful. So there's things like summary stats right there, which will show you like a, a graph, a distribution of the data in each column, a lot of those dot describe functions and has a really intuitive filtering. So things like filter by value. So you can see all the unique, all the unique values in your column, and then you can toggle them in and out of your data set, or you can add more, you know, customized filters, whichever you would like. But then once you move past this kind of like initial data cleaning, some people do write spreadsheet formulas. So we have a bunch of Excel's most popular formulas, right. things like date manipulation and date parsing. Here's a bunch of, here's a few of them. 
once you yeah. kind of get a sense of what your data looks like, you can do some of these transformations. And then ultimately, you'll end up with the script that you can use to run over and over again and never have to go back into the Excel world to and fight through the <laughs> manual process again. This portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Linode. Cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of TalkPython. You can find all the details over at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center that's nearest to you. You also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. Imagine that, real human support for everyone. You can choose shared or dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes clusters, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit talkpython.fm and click the Create Free Account button to get started. You can also find the link right in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to Linode for supporting TalkPython. To get data into this spreadsheet-like front end that is Mido, you basically just have to have a data frame, right? If you have a data frame, boom, and there's a ton of flexibility for doing that, right? You could load a file, you could get it from the internet, you could do even read HTML off of a URL and then go grab a table and then there's your data frame, work with that, right? There are simplifications, I guess. Like when you're in Mido, you can hit like file load equivalent, right? And browse to the files and then it'll write the pandas code, say like pd.readcsv to whatever you selected, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this, one of the things I think would be really interesting to talk with you about is generally in your kind of survey of the Python ecosystem, it's interesting because, I mean, Python is code, right? And so yeah. in some ways we're, you know, we're on this boundary, this flexible border between pure code and low code, no code tool. And there's been a hundred million low code, no code tools that have existed over the past, you know, 25, 30 years, whatever. And some of them are around and some of them aren't. And really the question for us that we kind of ask ourselves is, you know, what unique do we bring to the table here? And, you know, as a local tool, how do we differentiate ourselves? And it's that exact idea that you can also just pass a data frame. We're not necessarily interested in, we don't, we don't want to stop you from writing Python code. We want to enable you to write Python code as easily as you possibly can. And really that's how we see ourselves, you know, yeah. manning that spectrum. I think it's a really good place to be because... My hesitation with all these low-code, no-code tools is they usually, one, lock you into their thing, which is often a SaaS thing, right? So you're locked into having your data there and, and continuing to subscribe to a thing, which don't get me started on subscribing to so many things. I was suggested that I subscribe to my internet speed checker app. <laughs> Not pay for it. You need yeah, to know, but like, yeah, once an hour, you need to check, right? <laughs> yearly, I can subscribe to it. If I pay yearly for my speed checker, like, what are you doing? Too many things that are subscribed to. Anyway, um, not that subscriptions don't make sense for a lot of tools. But what I like about this is, like you said, you bring the data from wherever and you could do this out of a Postgres database and you build up a data frame and then you could throw into this visual place that speeds you up. And then what comes out the other end are more data frames, right? So you could even do multiple, I mean, maybe tell me if this is true. It seems like you could. You could do some regular Python code, some Mito that generates a really interesting transformation, 
some more Python code, and then maybe another MITO block that takes another bit of output and then you know brings in more data, does other stuff, right? You can kind of mix and match throughout these, right? Throughout the notebook. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the other day we went in GitHub and we searched MITO sheet to see how people are using it. And you see people using it in that exact way where they're importing data, they then generate some code using MITO, and then they'll, you know, one of the things, admittedly, that the tool is maybe not the best at right now is graphing. We have, you know, we support base, creating basic graphs, but not changing the colors, changing the titles, all of that. What uh, UI frameworks do you support? Um, Matplotlib? We use Plotly, we use Plotly. Altair. Okay. Yeah. We generate Plotly code, which has great documentation. It's really, you know, you can go in there, we give you a link and you can go in and make your edits. But this is one of those places where generating Python code and, you know, in this case, Plotly code is super helpful for everybody involved. For us, it's helpful because, you know, we didn't have to recreate the Plotly library, which is massive. But for everybody else, it's also helpful because, you know, because we didn't generate the Plotly, we didn't recreate the Plotly library. You are able to use, you know, the entire Plotly ecosystem and you're not locked in at all. So for something like Altrix, you know, where you can use their graphing features and if, you know, they don't have the graphs that you want to create, then you're kind of out of luck because you're locked in and there's not really an easy customizability path. But you own your Python code that might have generated. So it's up to you to do whatever you want. Yeah, I suspect you guys don't recommend this, but you technically could delete out, in a lot of cases, the Mito bits after you've generated your Python code and keep going like, okay, this was really helpful, but we actually don't need this anymore. There are cases where some of the Excel-like functions really come from you guys, right? But a lot of it is what it's writing is pandas and NumPy and Plotly code, right? Just speaking to the lock-in or not the lock-in side of the story, right? Yeah, I think we definitely support that. In Mito, actually, we have a button clear. You know, data analysis is all about this very iterative building your understanding of what of what is useful and you know where you want to go. So one of the actually the most commonly done things in the tool is actually clearing all of the edits that you've made to your analysis and you know and getting rid of Mito now that you have that understanding and wanting to take it in another direction. I think we're huge supporters. Well, we're big supporters in our own development process of cleaning your workspace. Nate is proud of how clean our code is, and um, you know if Mito isn't helpful for you right now, definitely get rid of it so you have an easy workflow, easy notebook to clean up and, and debug. Yeah, I think that's a big contrast going to some other no-code SaaS system. There is no, I don't want to use this exactly anymore. Just let me carry on with my analysis. There, there's none of that in most of these tools. And, and with yours, I think it, it's there to support you. And I can see it being incredibly valuable. But at the same time, it's, it's not the essence of what you're doing. It's the, the UI on, on top of Python, as Jake likes to say. Yeah, I was just going to say to the point of, um, of deleting out the Mito sheets. We have a society of secret Mito users who are trying to convince their bosses that they're really good at Python to get uh, pay raises. <laughs> so we support that workflow very, very well. Exactly. So one of the challenges that you can have when you have a machine write code is that it writes bad code that's hard to understand. And Nate, it sounds like you, you might have had some input on this, that it when you interact with Mito you do certain operations, like I do a filter, or I create a pivot table, or I filter out certain things, it'll actually write step one, you did this, step two, you did that. And it writes what looks like pretty well formatted Python code with little bits of documentation, like pivot the table, reset the column name and indexes and, and stuff like it'll even comment your code that it writes. You want to speak to that a little? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a this is a really interesting area that we've put a bunch of research time in, if you can call it that. So there's a couple of things that I want to, I think, highlight here, and I'd love to also hear your thoughts on as well. So I, you're totally right. Machines writing code, it's all the rage these days in some ways with these <laughs> fancy, you know, machine learning systems where you can 
you know, write a little prompt and everything will get written for you. Mito takes a little bit of a different approach where exactly as you say, when you, for example, add a filter, it'll generate the line of code that corresponds to that filter. Of course, immediately the question becomes, this is not exactly how I want the code to be. I didn't mean to do that. I meant to do something else. And so really the way we think about it is giving the user that code in the cleanest way that we possibly can. So just as an example of this, if the user adds a column and then immediately after renames that column, a feature that we're actually releasing this week is that it's going to get collapsed into just the adding of the column with the new name, right? Nice. Yeah. That's ultimately what the user was intending to do. There's other more fancy things that you can do. You can start getting into kind of code optimization where it's like you made a pivot table, then you overwrote the pivot table. And those are all things that we're definitely interested in um, and kind of are on the roadmap for improving. But um, generally, you're totally right. If we want users to be able to learn from this code, to be able to use this code, we need to generate clean semantic Python that really works in the wild and is actually editable by the users. Otherwise, it's just a blob, a mass that you can't actually interact with. Yeah, well, you get it, but at least from the examples I've seen, I would be happy to take that and then start writing directly on that. Even though it's I, you don't see it on the screen, it's like right above. I scrolled it right a little bit off there. But it says, don't edit, edit this section. This is Mito code. I totally. guess that's if you still want to be able to use Mito on it. You know, exactly. <laughs> don't don't right. mess it up, right? We're, we're actually, we're, that's a, a feature we're working on this week is improving that communication. You can take Mito code and edit it and change it however you want. The only problem is Mito might have trouble reinterpreting that if you try and then later replay an analysis. But uh, that's also a work in progress. And ideally, the, you know, the kind of perfect version of what we you know, envision long-term and maybe we'll get there. Maybe this is impossible. But one really cool thing that we're kind of thinking about is edit a spreadsheet to generate Python. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking if this could be uh, bi-directional, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, right? really cool. Yeah. So really, it's this world where you're you're really fluidly writing code and editing a spreadsheet. And if something's easier in code, go write the code. If something's easier in the spreadsheet, go write the spreadsheet. And that's definitely a vision that we've seen ourselves kind of realizing over time currently and, and something that, as you mentioned, you can go Mito, Python, Mito, Python and do that currently. But uh, making that easier for our users to really use the code in a dynamic and, and real way, as you would any other Python code that you write, is definitely something that we're actively investing in right now and really trying to improve. Nice. Yeah, I like the idea of being able to have it do some optimizations rather than create a variable and then overwrite the variable with some other thing and you know, just do it all, all at once. I'm sure there's a ton of stuff in Pandas that could be done better rather than like a really naive, straightforward, like multi-step stage, right? Yeah. And the other thing I will say is the one benefit actually to generating this code is that, and not to insult anyone because I'm the biggest offender of this, but most data science scripts you see in the wild are not the like pinnacle of clean, well-kept code. It's usually yeah. out of order notebooks where, you know, because it's such a dynamic process, it's just very hard in practice to keep these things well organized. And so actually what yeah. we can do in practice is generate some documentation for what's happening and help users save and manage these scripts in a more linear and organized way, et cetera and help users kind of adopt these best practices. And that's sort of the stuff that we've, you know, we've been exploring recently. And Aaron was actually working on some of this today, um, improving some of this code generation stuff, but it's not the highest of bars to meet. And we definitely think that we can, you know, continue to improve and surpass that and make sure that the code we're generating is really great, yeah. great stuff. Yeah, that's and cool. stuff you'd be happy to edit. One thing that while I'm looking at this, I'll just throw this out of here as a piece of feedback with very little actual experience. So take it for, with a grain of salt is you've got like step one, step two, step three. It'd be cool if those were actually separate cells. So like at the end of say step three, I could do like a pivot table dot head or something just to like sort of touch on it and explore it a little bit along there. Yeah, no, definitely. And a, a similar thing that we've also certainly thought of that that multi-cell approach would enable is, you know, changing the order of steps, switching things around and saying, oh, I actually want to filter first and then pivot versus pivoting and then filtering. Yeah. 
yeah, certainly on the roadmap, but definitely, definitely something we want to do, giving users more options on how they actually export this code and what they do with it at the end. Yeah, uh, super neat. I got a question out here that kind of leads into where I was going to go with this anyway, and I'm going to switch the order so I don't cover your head, Jake. <laughs> Spawn also asked, does Mitre support switching or u- switching from or to or using Dask? So, gotcha. Yeah. Not currently, no. So the one really cool thing is because of the Mito, the way Mito works internally, which is something we can definitely get into depending on, you know, if you're, mm-hmm. you think your audience would be interested in it, yeah, yeah. what the appetite is. But we really have the ability to kind of switch out, let's say, what the backend is of Mito. Kind of what code do we actually end up generating is something that can we can leave up in the air. And really our interface can be a more general thing than just Python code or just pandas in Python code. Yeah, especially for these frameworks that are near compatible, API compatible with Pandas, right? Like Dask. Like I think Dask is almost exactly in, in many for most of the basic operations, it's they've aligned on the pandas UI just or the pandas um the pandas API just for you know how to kind of handle things. So it's definitely something that in the future we could, you know, we could support. And if we have users who are working with huge data sets and need Dask, then it's definitely something you know we'd be interested in learning about and exploring. You know, Dask, when I first think of Dask, I think large clusters, massively scaled out data, but then at the same time. Right over here, I have my MacBook Pro Max, which has, you know, 10 cores on it. And when I run Python code, I get 10% of that CPU, right? And Dask will allow you to scale across your CPUs, even on your local machine, right? Or scale larger than your memory and stuff. And so I feel like it's Dask, even for just making your local work go better, is actually probably under-realized or under-utilized. That's super cool. It's interesting that the range of data set sizes that we actually see in practice, it's very, I would say, at least from my observations, and Aaron Jake, feel free to hop on this, but it's like very bimodal in that there's a lot of people hanging out with 100,000 rows. And then there's some people that are like, hey, I have, you know, 100 million records I'm looking to analyze. And we're like, well, <laughs> you know, good luck on your 2012 MacBook. You know what I got? Yeah. Like, uh, it's yeah, it's yeah, going to take yeah. a bit. So <laughs> get a coffee. Yeah, yeah, chill out. Go bit. to sleep. Wake up tomorrow. Hope it hasn't crashed, I think is the, the general strategy. Yeah. So that does lead me towards my final two little areas I want to speak about before we run out of time here. Now, on one hand, this is just writing Python code. So its performance and its limitations are what effectively pandas can deal with. On the other, it is showing that stuff and allowing you to sort it visually. So there might be some constraints on like amount of data you can work with. What's the the data size story? It's a great question. We have a release coming out within the next two weeks. Generally, but here's our here's our motto. We obviously we're providing a visual interface. There's going to be a little bit of overhead, but the way we like to think about what we do is that it's a tiny little bit of flat overhead, no matter how big your data is. Okay. For example, you won't try to show the entire hundred million rows yeah. in a grid, or like you'll do some sort of uh, like virtual lazy load list or something like exactly, that. Exactly, a lazy load list. And we actually have a lazy load of the entire data set. That's a feature coming out within the next two weeks or so. It's all written. We just got to you know test it a bit better in the wild, but. Uh, yeah, effectively, it's we're a, a very thin wrapper on top of pandas functionality. And in practice, what that means what that means is anything you can do in pandas, you should be able to do in Mito uh, from a data set size perspective. It's something that was very important to us, especially because a lot of our users are in Python because of data set size limitations in the first place, as you know, I think Jake mentioned. Yeah, 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 and that's it, a good point. This is something that we spent a lot of time. We were previously using HGrid as our like actual display unit, and it just wasn't made in combination of probably us not implementing it 100% how they might implement it and, you know, them not optimizing for these ginormous data data sets. Nate, in particular, just spent a huge amount of time recreating the entire grid from scratch so we could have (laughs) complete customizability over it and show as much 
as much data as possible. Nice. I mean, sometimes you got to do that, right? You're like, this this control is amazing, but we've outgrown it and bite the bullet and just do it right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, interesting question from Samir out there. Hey, Samir, can I use Mido in VS Code? And I'll sort of expand to that just a little bit. Can I use it in, in some of these other tools that are not exactly notebooks? So we've got VS Code has its kind of own way of presenting and showing notebooks. We've got PyCharm and we've got Data Spell, which is JetBrain's new data science IDE thing. What's the story with these environments? So unfortunately, right now, Lido only works in JupyterLab. But this question is something that comes up all the time. We, I think the places we hear the most interest are VS Code and Google Collab. Mm. And we're definitely excited and really want to support those environments as well. And I think we've, we've done a lot of work internally on how we design, how we design Mido to make it extendable. It's now, you know, we have a lot of these like functionality that we're trying to pack into the tool and then handling these new environments is, you know, a decent amount of development work as well. So it's all a prioritization game at this point. Yeah, but of course. Yeah. So short answer is we don't support them now, but in the future, we definitely will. Cool. All right. Two other areas quickly I want to touch on. One, tell us a little bit about how this is implemented internally. I think it, I don't know how it's implemented, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's somewhat like a lot of Jupyter stuff. Like I want to do Jupyter things for Python, but I got to write them in JavaScript. Is that the story here as well? You know, actually your earlier comment of, imagine it's just like a, a slidey widget that you can use in a graph in Jupyter Lab was spot on. <laughs> The iPie interactive widget or whatever. We are actually <laughs> just a very fancy iPie interactive widget. Okay. In practice, how that actually works for your audience, if they're interested, is there's kind of two pieces to your code base. There's a, a JavaScript front end and there's a Python back end. The JavaScript front end is the sheet that you see. It's the buttons that you click. And what that actually does is it just, it's a very thin wrapper that just then sends a message to this Mito sheet Python package in the back and says, hey, I just clicked this add column button. You should add a column, excuse me, to this data frame. And then that Python processes that message and then responds to the front end and says, okay, great, display the new data frame and also write this code to the cell below. And that's kind of the high level of, of what happens there. It gets, you know, as you can say, more complex in the nitty gritty. We're in practice, we're a React code base. We use TypeScript because we like strong typing and we kind of hate Python's weak typing. But Do you use uh, type annotations on your Python side? We are gradually adding them to our code base. We don't currently type check, actually. We mostly use them yeah. as like IDE support to make things easier. That's but... the main thing I use them for as well, because a lot of times the IDEs will show you the errors if you make them anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely, you, you get some support, but Pandas, I'll say Pandas typing support, obviously Pandas is the main library we interact with, is not, it's not perfect in all cases. It's a very complex library, so for sure. But uh, effectively, in those cases, things kind of break down and the errors that you get are maybe sometimes false positives, some, sometimes false negatives, and you can chew yourself in the foot sometimes. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so it's a blend. It's it's the JavaScript, React, TypeScript front end, and then Python back end. Yep, yeah, exactly. That question of that, let's say that stratification and that architecture is that's exactly what's going to have to evolve as we kind of move into other places like Google Colab, VS Code, et cetera. They all have slightly different extension architectures. And so architecting our code bases so these things are separatable and reconfigurable and in the ways that other... Uh, data science environments expect is, is something that we've kind of been trying to do. But, it, you know, a plea to everyone who's developing data science IDEs, settle on one extension environment, please. <laughs> I know it's never going to happen, but it'd be really nice for us extension developers. We'd love it for sure. Right. Or making a, an adapter. Yeah. Right. An if, adapter if somebody really nice. created things that if you have a, a Jupyter UI and you want to put it in Google Colab, you just insert this thing and talk yeah. to it and then magic happens. Yeah. Shims when they work are great. So if someone's done yeah. that, let us know. Please reach out. We'd uh, <laughs> really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. 
All right. Another thing I do want to make sure that we touch on a little bit is up here at the top, I see plans. And so this is not for every possible use case of free tool, right? You have a a free version and you have a, a higher order paid version for teams, if I'm understanding that correctly, right? So we have, Mito is a free community tool. We have free users, 90 whatever percent of our users are for free. If you're an end user, please download it. You know, you can, you can pivot solve when it's free. We work with some larger organizations in sort of more bespoke manner doing custom development, custom integration, and those are the payment happening there sometimes with some of those larger enterprises. What we're building out now is sort of that middle piece where we, you know, we want to have sort of a plan for teams, maybe with better security, some pre-development hours, things like that. And that business model is, is evolving, but we'll probably be, what we want is a, a SaaS model there where you're paying, you know, 10 bucks a month or something. It does seem like uh, some kind of online system. I mean, you go to Jupyter through a browser anyway, some kind of system that's like really already configured because you're helping people come into Python who probably don't totally want to pip install and manage their path and activate virtual environments and all those kinds of things, yeah. right? Yeah, it's kind of like really help them there, right? Totally. And, and that's one of the things we do when we work with some of these larger enterprises is help them with the setup of their Jupyter Hub environment, help them get the package they need, help them get Mito installed, obviously. But I was going to say to viewers, you know, we're, we're definitely looking to partner with more organizations or teams. If anyone wants to reach out and make my email or something will be in a, in a link somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We'll put your contact information in the show Sounds notes. Good. But yeah, we're definitely, you know, we're looking to work with teams right now as we have a really good, a really strong user base. Yeah. Cool, cool. So I'm glad that you guys have some kind of business model because a lot of these things, they they come and then people kind of lose interest and then, then they go. And there's a real big difference of this is my job and my investment, so I'm really going to work on it versus this is a thing I'm kind of excited about for a few months. So it's cool you got a free plan for people to use. That, that's awesome. It's also cool that there's a, a path to support to just make it better. Yeah, yeah. We're here for the long haul and uh, works out. The other thing I'll add here is it's, and I in no way mean this on a knock of, on the like hundreds of amazing data science tools that are out there, but there's, I think like this level of polish that we really feel a desire to reach with our tool. It's like that, that kind of, when you're delivering a tool to a paying customer, there's often a different expectation that comes from the paying customer. And we do our very best to hold ourselves to the highest standard possible. But when someone who's, you know, paying you reaches out and says, hey, this button doesn't look the way it should. That extra level of polish really kind of kicks the tool over the edge. And all of those, all of that feature development ends up getting, you know, pushed back to the individual users. And so really, uh, the, the free users, I'll say, and, you know, most of the people who use our tool. And so really, you know, we're trying to build the best tool that we can here and making sure that we can do that sustainably long term and really invest in, you know, what we're doing and build a team around it is something that, you know, really is necessary if we're going to deliver on what we think we can and the promise. Yeah, yeah. cool. Another yeah. nice thing about the paying users are just that we get to, we get to work in a much more close relationship with them. So there's a lot, uh, that, that's where we get to zone in on like specific use cases around financial services or around bio research. So we've gone to work on specific features and specific workloads that we definitely wouldn't otherwise that I think today's part are going to really benefit everyone who uses the tool. Yeah. yeah, very cool. I'm fascinated with the different ways people are working and operating in open source space or building on top of open source tools to create businesses, you know, we've got the anacondas, we've got the MongoDBs and, and stuff out there. So yeah, good, good luck to you guys. I, I'd like to see you succeed here. Thank yeah, thanks so much. And then yeah. the last thing I'll say is, you know, we do our best to, to give back to open source tools as well, especially the ones that we work on. So you'll see me sometimes being annoying, opening issues on GitHub. And <laughs> I think that's another big piece of this is as we build on open source tools, making sure we contribute back to them in, in ways that are meaningful and, and actually helpful is, you know, certainly really important as well. And definitely yeah. something to, you know, say. Something yeah, to fantastic. explicitly say. All right. Well, I think that's about it for the time that we have to talk about 
extending notebooks and Mido and all this. Really cool stuff that you all built. Before I let you out of here, there's the final two questions. However many in what order and whatnot you want to take this, just jump on in. Notable PyPI package out there, something you've come across, you're like, oh, this library is awesome. It doesn't get enough attention. Anything come to mind? Yes, honestly, something that a lot of our users use, and Jake, actually, feel free to hop in after me, but I would say uh, Pandas Profiling. Uh, it's a tool that does somewhat similar stuff to us, but okay. it's a super great tool for many of our users, and I don't think a ton of people know about it. And it works right in JupyterLab as well. So there's a package called Lux, which is cool. I don't even know if it's actually still being supported or developed at all, but I really love it. Log so you look up Lux Python, it's cool. It does like automatic graph suggestions. So you can pass in a data frame and it'll suggest sort of give you options of visualizations just click on and use, which I think is a really quick thing. It's not the most like why fully fledged package, but for what it does, I think it's really good. Now it's these little things that people don't know about. They're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go check this out. It might help. Yeah. You. A Python API for intelligent visual discovery. Yeah, I may not could be exact mode, but we're really close and we love the deep note product. It's like uh-huh. it's pushing notebooks forward. So trying to add like collaboration, live collaboration, like Google Sheets and Google Docs. It has a lot more potentially a more friendly interface than some of the rest Jupyter notebooks that are a little bit bare bones at times. Okay. There's also another notebook. Yeah, really cool. I, I've spoken to the deep note people just a little bit and they're doing cool stuff for yeah, sure. He's cool. Obviously there's another notebook called X. We had to talk to their founders recently about some potential collaboration, but they're, they're doing cool stuff as well. Okay. Fantastic. All right. And then if you're going to write some Python code, uh, notebooks, obviously, if anything else, uh, what editor do you use? We're big VS code users. Okay. All three of you guys? Jake, when he dabbles, Neelan, so. Yes. Love that one, yeah. I was thinking about this yesterday recently. It's like, I wish at school someone taught a class called actually doing software development in the real world because I feel like I lived my whole, yes. my whole school life writing Java code in Eclipse and like crashing my computer. And then I started using VS Code and it was like this transcendent moment of bliss where I was like, <laughs> oh, programming can actually be fun. And it turns out the tools I was using just made my computer heat up to a thousand yes. degrees and burn my lap, so. <laughs> Yeah, I really agree with that statement that that there's a bit of a mismatch of, of what is taught in sort of computer science and then what is expected of people when they get out in the real world. And it might not be as academically highly valued, but really good, like working with tools like VS Code and, and PyCharm and these other tools that help you write code better, quicker, and some of the software engineering science, I think that's really uh, could be valuable. No, totally. And also the other thing I'll say is for developers like us, maybe who came out of school and moved into a startup and, and you know, didn't have a ton of experience, let's say writing Python in production uh, in the wild. The other thing I would highly recommend is continuous integration. You can set it up through GitHub or GitLab, I'm sure, if you use that as well. Testing your code automatically on a server, huge productivity gains for us and, and really has increased our confidence that we're able to deliver like the best possible product and not something ever anyone ever told us about, you know, when <laughs> yeah. we were in school. So... <laughs> No, go implement a database in Lisp. Okay. All right. And it's John out in the audience has a quick, uh, funny comment about the editors. NeoVim, of course. That's starting to get some attention lately as well. Very cool. I'm nice scared job. of anything with the word Vim and it scares me, but uh, I'm sure you're a superhuman for using it. But uh. <laughs> you know how you generate a, a proper random number or character set is you get a first year computer science student into Vim and then you ask them to quit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've seen the most, the most like Stack Overflow questions, like I'm trapped in Vim. How the hell do I get out of here? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's so funny. It's like half of what Stack Overflow does is answering just that question specifically. Exactly. For sure. That's great. All right. So final call to action, you guys, people are excited about this. How do they get started? Where do they go from here? Dot trymito.io, which is a documentation website. And if you're an organization enterprise, 
uh, just reach out to me at my email, jake at sagacollab.com, which we'll have all links here. Or if you go to the plans page, there's a link there. But yeah, the documentation, docs at trimino.io, download it, start using it today. Yeah, right on. Also, I'll throw out there while you're on the docs, watch the videos. That's a quick and easy way to really see what it's about. And yeah. before we wrap it up here, uh, Mr. Hypermagnetic has a little comment like that Vim is the eighth, <laughs> it's like the eighth <laughs> deadly sins. It's weird though, because it's not just the eighth of the deadly sins. It's the eighth of the deadly sins that also like 10% of the population swears is the greatest oh, yeah, thing yeah. since sliced bread. And so it's like half the population, like me, I'm terrified of the damn thing. But my father is like, mm, son, like my dad's <laughs> dad from the 80s is like, son, have you heard of this? And I'm like, dad, please, I can't take this right now. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, my co-host on uh, Python Bytes, Brian Ock, he's all about Vim. Everything's Vim. It's great. But um, I did some Emacs and then I, I kind of did some other more UI oriented things. Awesome. All right. Well, Jake, Aaron, Nate, it's been fun to have you here. Congratulations on this project. I think it's going to help a lot of people get into Python and data science quicker, more easy. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Great chatting. Nathan, hey, yeah. guys. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Choose Shortcut, formerly Clubhouse IO, for tracking all of your project's work because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Visit talkpython.fm slash shortcut. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the Create Free Account button to get started. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.